Hi, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts answer questions and share real-world examples that you, the listener, can incorporate as part of your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Welcome to Episode 16. And also, it's Realty Speak's first birthday. Yay! Today, we have Chris Parker from Give Development in Utah. Chris develops with three things in mind, the building, the people in it, and the impact on planet Earth. An early adopter to sustainable design and construction, Chris is a pioneer in his field, and you are in for a treat today. Welcome, Mr. Chris Parker. Thanks for joining us today on Realty Speak. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate being here. Oh, and, and by the way, a happy birthday to Realty Speak. Thank you, Chris. Chris, this May, it'll be eight years for Give Development and your sister company, Give Communities. And you have five completed projects and five in the works. Please share with our listeners the story of Give and why reducing the carbon footprint is such an important part of your mission. So Give is a hybrid nonprofit, for-profit group that goes into blighted and transitional neighborhoods and tries to spark them where that's needed. And then if they're about to be, you know, kind of gentrified or lose part of what makes them uh, interesting and vital, try to put some bulwarks in place via affordable housing and community uh, resources and kind of culture preservation so that when the vegan donut shops come in and sweep over the world that uh, everybody gets to enjoy those when they do. We really started looking at environmental design and more specifically for the Utah market, solutions to clean air that could actually have market life in, in a real world. So we, we started looking at how you might go ahead and change the market dynamics that make us use fossil fuels and carbon sources the way that we do today in a way that you don't aren't requiring people to necessarily go against other kind of priorities they have in life uh, to go ahead and get that done. Our interest in green design really stems from a specific local kind of issue that Salt Lake City has with uh, clean air. Salt Lake City is an ideal place to live in a lot of different ways. We're completely surrounded by mountains. You're 15 minutes to ski slopes from a lot of Salt Lake City. You're eight minutes to the airport from downtown. It's a great place to live. But that geography actually has a really kind of interesting dynamic when it comes to air quality. Every winter, we'll have at least several weeks where we're in the running for the worst air in the nation, even though we have a relatively low population. And that's because these surrounding mountains act as a bowl that kind of has a jet stream that goes above them and just kind of keeps anything that we would go ahead and uh, have emit from our buildings and vehicles, et cetera, um, in, in this little place until we get some snow and it blows out. So we really were interested in ways that you might you know, really address that on a macro scale, addressing the market dynamics that make that reality today what it is and really started focusing on, well, okay, if tomorrow looks different and tomorrow looks different for everybody building, what are the sorts of things we need to prove today to really lay the groundwork for, for that new tomorrow? And so what you're doing is a study of how it may work in the future on a grander scale. Yeah. We kind of started with the, the basic question of why is it this way today? And why don't people build carbon neutral or net zero or generally non-polluting buildings in kind of the, the day-to-day life of construction and development in Utah and really the nation? And we came up with two principal reasons for that and then kind of an ancillary third. 
Uh, if you're building in multifamily in Salt Lake City, we were lucky to have a lot of solar exposure. But even with that high amount of solar exposure, the area of your solar panels on your roof has to equate with the volume of your building underneath it if you want to truly be off the grid or, or get all of your power from solar. And what that means in our market is that your building ends up being two or three stories tall. Uh, that's just the ratio that works. The trouble is that most multifamily built in Utah is four, five, and six stories. Some of it gets a little bit higher, but it's very rare for you to see a multifamily building that's only two stories. And so you have what the market wants to naturally build, and then what net zero technology that's currently thought of can provide. And that disconnect is one of the principal reasons why not everybody builds net zero structures. If you're talking to Mr. or Mrs. Developer and say, hey, here, do this cool thing, it's only going to cost you 40 to 60% of your units, it's typically a very short conversation. And importantly, too, it, it's not even a clean conversation on what the right answer would be if, like us, you're providing mixed income or affordable housing. Do you provide less affordable housing units so that you can have clean, powered building? There's not a perfect answer to that. An ideal solution to air quality or to getting everyone on net zero would have to solve the kind of disconnect right now with what the market wants to build versus what it can build uh, in today's reality. The second principal downside to net zero carbon neutral buildings are they're typically more expensive. Uh, we recently built a you know 112 unit apartment complex, and were we to use a very 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 efficient HVAC system like a VRF system, it would have been an extra million dollars over what is typically installed in this sort of complex. So again, if you're looking at Mr. And Mrs. Developer and saying, hey, here's this cool thing, we think you should do it. By the way, it's only going to cost you an extra million dollars. Short conversation. These projects are difficult enough to pencil as it is, that the added complexity of doing something new mixed with a huge ticket in which to do it or with which you'd have to do it, again, makes it so that it is what it is today, which is basically nobody is doing these or the people that are doing them you know, typically have some outside investment uh, that really wants to do that exact thing. It's not a natural thing that happens in the ecosystem. So uh, we're, we're really focused on finding solutions that our buildings can not only be carbon neutral, not connected to natural gas or whatever other fossil fuel-based fuel source you might have. But if we can do so in a way that could see ready acceptance in the market that solves those two problems so that there no longer are barriers to anybody doing this, then that really is kind of the, the direction that we're looking at going with Gibb. What's the solution you came up with that enabled you to create these projects and have them be profitable? We chatted with our utility. And we're like, look, we've got this math problem if we're providing on-site solar for all of our usage, and we want to build a building that's, uh, in the case of open, which is the 112-unit structure I, I just mentioned, we got a six-story building. Where is that one located, the 112-unit structure? Sure. It's right uh, in West Downtown in Salt Lake City, about 10 minutes away from the airport, right on a transit stop. And what utility are you having a conversation with? Rocky Mountain Power, which is part of Pacificor, uh, it's a regional utility of many states. What utility did they provide? Electric, gas? They provide electricity to yeah, a lot of the northwest and then kind of the Intermountain West uh, area. I think, I think they were recently bought out by Berkshire Hathaway, so it's part of their general utility grouping that they've amassed. And you said you're having a conversation with them. So how does that conversation go? really well, actually. It starts with, hey, the math says that to power this building that I want to make all electric, so not even having a gas line hooked to it, 
that I need three and a half acres of solar field to power this thing. And I've only got a one and a half acre site. So what can we do to try to make some of this math work? And they launched a pretty innovative project called Subscriber Solar. We were the first multifamily partner that they had with this, where basically they will build an offsite solar field and they will let you sign your name on X amount of panels. Instead of paying the install cost of that solar field, you basically amortize it in something like a regular monthly bill. So their subscriber solar program lets you say, hey, I want these solar panels. I'm going to pay you X amount of increase per kilowatt, which is very low right now, actually. We pay about a a one cent per kilowatt premium to go ahead and have this solar field dedicated to us. So that one cent per kilowatt premium that you're paying, that is actually amortizing the cost of the install over a period of time? Exactly. I mean, they basically take what their cost over a 20-year period is to go ahead and amortize that investment down. And they say, well, this works out to us needing to charge this amount per kilowatt. Their second phase of this project uh, was a successful rollout. They actually did a 20-megawatt field in their first instantiation. The next field that they're looking at doing is substantially bigger. That penny per kilowatt premium will likely come down to where eventually it is basically the same price. Uh, but yeah, they say, look, here, here's your field. You can literally sign your name on your panels if you would like. We will install them on our dime. So you don't have to pay a thing. All you've got to do is basically pay something very similar to the utility bill you would be paying anyway. There's no actual contract on your side. So if you wanted to drop out after year one, you can. However, uh, because they are amortizing their debt, they will fix your rate uh, for 20 years. So you don't have any of the you know, kind of risk associated with increasing utility bills, which on a net zero and more importantly, an affordable housing project, that actually can be a pretty big variable. You can fix rent at, pretty solidly in your pro forma, but if a tenant has 2x or 3x utility bill over the next 15 years, that's a real chunk of their budget that you really can't mitigate. So it solves a lot of problems, but the biggest problem it solves is now you can put a solar field in a place with really good exposure. Uh, Southern Utah is one of the best places in the nation to actually have solar on. So it's getting more juice per panel. Your install cost for a solar field in a large you know, multi-megawatt array is something like a, a buck a kilowatt instead of the 2 to $3 a kilowatt that you would see if you were to put it on our actual rooftop. And because they're bearing the upfront cost and you're not bearing the upfront cost, now that second problem of how do we do this economically so that it's not a huge premium to build net zero buildings has helped quite a bit. So that deal with Rocky Mountain Power allows us to theoretically build a skyscraper that's all electric and still be able to have a dedicated solar field apportioned to it that isn't some kind of fuzzy math that some of these offsets sometimes get into where you you know, burn a bunch of gas and then you pay someone a check and pretend you didn't do it. This really is a, you know, this field is dedicated to you. It's not going to anybody else. But yeah, now you can power any size of building via this partnership with Rocky Mountain Power, which is really unique and we hope spreads quite a bit. What that also does is now that I'm not being incredibly miserly with my energy. So if I'm a regular net zero building and I've got a big solar panel on the top or solar field on the top of my building, every little kilowatt I've got to be very, very careful with because I just have a limited amount of supply. 
But if you have basically a field that you can size to whatever your supply wants to be, then instead of the triple pane windows and the VRS system and the foot thick wall, all of which cost a lot of money and drive up the traditional price of net zero housing, you don't have to do any of that. You basically can build more or less a normal building that you can simply make electric and you can use very efficient electric systems, but they aren't that kind of, you know, top of the end Cadillac system that's going to really drive up costs. So we were able to find systems to power that particular project that actually cost less apples to apples than their natural gas counterpart. And how they cost less is the equipment, at least on that phase, was about the same cost. But all the things that you didn't have to do now that you're a one source building really start adding up. So typically we go ahead and we pump noxious gas into our buildings. And then because we're going to light it on fire within our buildings, we have to have fire shafting around combustion units. You have to have ventilation for fresh air to come to these combustion units. That means holes in your facade, holes in your roof, fireproof shafting going, going out to your roof special closets that are fire rated to protect you from this basic engine that we put in each of our homes. You get to take away all that with electricity. I mean, you, you could put an electric water heater, these tankless water heaters in this uh, particular project. They're the size of a phone book and you could put them in a regular closet or under a sink because there's no fire going on. So you save a lot in just flexibility design wise and you now don't have a furnace closet and a water heater closet that has to be protected from a fire standpoint, but also those penetrations and those shafting uh, kind of runs, et cetera, add up. So when we, when we did the raw math on it, we saved about 62 grand uh, on phase one relative to had we done natural gas, which is a big deal. What was the total project cost? On that one, it was about $17 million. The second phase actually broke ground last week, and we've refined the systems we were using a little bit. And that project, the 95-unit project, and we think we saved about $250,000 on that project relative to had we done just what everybody else kind of in the market and what we had prior to these two projects been doing in the market with their natural gas systems. So now the conversation changes. You've gone from a world where a net zero building has to be prohibitively short and prohibitively expensive to your pitch to you know, Mr. and Mrs. Developer is now, hey, would you like to save a quarter million dollars? Here's how. Oh, and by the way, it'll clean the air. So you're increasing density, which means there's more housing for people that need it. You're reducing the cost of the project, and you are reducing your carbon footprint of that building basically to zero. Yeah, because we've got the solar field powering the entirety, you know, theoretically powering the entirety of the project. I mean, the solar piece of that is important, but it isn't even necessary to make a huge dent in our carbon output. You said Southern Utah, so the solar field is not proximate to the project. No, it's not. Um, it's, it's in basically the best place in Utah for getting solar exposure. Are you actually receiving the power directly from that particular solar field? Or is that solar field powering something else that then somehow gives you the benefit in your building using electricity? You know, I mean, there's not a direct line from that field to our building. It basically enters the grid. And then we made sure that the amount of power entering the grid is equivalent to what we are using from the grid. At night, our building still needs power. A lot of that comes from wind power from Wyoming. But we made sure that the amount entering the, 
the actual grid is equivalent to what we're taking out of it. The tenants are paying their own electric bill. They have their own electric meter. Uh, yes and no. It's a mixed income building. About 30% of it is market rate and about 70% of it is affordable at several, several different tiers. Uh, the affordable tenants we give free power to. The market rate tenants pay their own power. So you're paying the power for the affordable units, about 70% of the building. And what you're saying is that there's a uh, one cent per kilowatt hour premium on your bill. I'm trying to wrap my head around this. You're using electricity from the grid. And because it's a complete electric building, is it using a tremendous amount of power? Like, is it costing more to run that building than if it was natural gas? That's the interesting thing on a unit by unit breakdown, electric heat specifically is traditionally more expensive than natural gas fired or aspirated heat. We use heat pump systems that are pretty efficient. I mean, they get up to 300% efficient. So they're pretty close, but there is a slight increase in if you were to take the annual cost per unit for utilities, there's an increase of something like 2 or $3 a month relative in just usage relative to what you would if you were natural gas and power. The kicker, though, is that you pay a connection fee to, uh, in our case, Dominion Energy is our natural gas provider in this market, of $7 basically a month just to be connected. And that's if you don't use anything. So when you net out the true cost to our residents, you have a slight increase in usage costs, but you have a decrease in kind of dead costs, so to speak. So the net utility bill to our residents is actually lower than had they gone with a traditionally split system too, because you're getting that $7 a month savings. I guess that all the projects that you're doing are a mix of uh, market rate and affordable housing? That's right. Uh, we think it's best for both sides to kind of have that diversity. of so that, that's, that's our bread and butter. Are there other developers in the state of Utah or close by in the Mountain West that are doing similar types of projects? If you're an affordable housing developer there's a good likelihood that you'll be including at least some market rate in your Utah project. If you're a market rate developer, it's very rare here to see someone do a mostly market building and put in a little bit of affordable, whereas other markets, you might see that a little bit more. But yeah, if you're, if you're primarily affordable, then there's a good shot you're putting in some amount of market. As far as being all electric, not yet, but it's, it's been a fun year to see the projects that are currently in the pipeline for a lot of developers kind of on the heels of Project Open. We've got some high hopes. You really do have a solution that is more affordable to install and is more affordable to run and solves a very unique air quality problem along the Wasatch Front region of Utah we don't think there's really a barrier left for the market trying to adopt this. And that's that's kind of our interest. And there's been some fun movements even this year that seem to suggest we've, we've got a shot at doing this. Well, you have uh, obviously a lot of experience around this because you've been doing it already and you were an early adopter. And so you've really created a template, I believe, for other developers to use to uh, promote this kind of project. And talked a little bit about affordable housing, and we know that uh, affordable housing meets the needs of many different demographics. And a little birdie told me a story about how it was really, really important to you to understand the perspective of the people that would move into your affordable housing units 
And you took some time to do a study, and I wonder if you would share that with us, that study. And I, I believe it was a year, and at one point you were living in affordable housing, and at another point you were homeless. Would you share that with us? You know, I uh, <laughs> I, I didn't think we'd be talking about that today, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy to share what what was a, a year-long study on on uh, what it's like to live in, in one of our buildings on a minimum wage. And then there was a month of that year that uh, was, um, to the extent that you can, uh, an attempt to approximate homelessness. And then a month of that was in a, in a van as well. From the homeless's point of view. Uh, yeah. I mean, to the extent that you ever could approximate homelessness, I mean, anything that is both chosen and has an end date to it, I really can't do much service to the kind of ever-present stress that typically goes with that lifestyle and importantly goes with the lifestyle that led to that lifestyle. We did a year study. The first nine months of it were living on a minimum wage in one of our buildings. The idea basically was, okay, I mean, we, we think we know certain things, but what really is a day in the life? And you know, it's it was a little different than kind of a, oh, try it for a day or try it for a week. Because you can kind of, that feels like a vacation in a meaningful way. You don't really have to adjust your life much. You just have to get through it. But uh, we felt that if you if you went a little bit longer with it, so this became something that you, you had to kind of innervate with. Uh, that, you know, you just, we would know how to do what we do better, which is something we wanted to do. So it started out as just a, a minimum income or minimum wage uh experiment. And then it became rather clear uh, as I was in, say, month six, seven, eight, that I was really only getting one view of minimum wage, which was coming down to it. So a lot of my thinking on it was, oh, it stinks that this isn't here. It, I've got to find transportation solutions. I've got to find you know, ways where people can eat healthier because my, my income simply isn't providing uh, what I'm accustomed to. But you end up looking at it from, you know, really myopic view of someone coming down to it. So the the idea was, well, I mean, to give it a fair shot of kind of understanding what minimum wage would look like, you really should come to it coming up as well. And so the idea was, well, we could do a, a month with, you know, approximating to the extent that you can homelessness. So yeah, we, I had a couple weeks up in the Ogden area. Uh, they had recently completed a shelter uh, up there. And so the first two weeks were, there, there's actually a fair amount of our homeless population that does go to work on a regular basis. So I, I did that, um, had, had, you know, went to a job for, you know, eight hours and then walked um, about an hour to the shelter every night, which was an interesting experience. The shelter itself had two different components to it. You had kind of this, for lack of a better word, drunk tank which is where, at least at the time, they had you enter if you came in on the weekends and couldn't be checked in. And that was a very eye-opening world because I didn't sleep at all for four days. I ended up leaving the shelter and sleeping behind a dumpster at a warehouse uh, because I had to get some sleep and I couldn't get it in that environment. Versus um, once I got checked in to the general population, uh, it was actually some of the best sleep I've I've gotten in my life because of the things, once you, once you realize no one's trying to kill you there, which at least in that population, they're not. Um, 
you know, the things that the shelter requires of you, which is, you know, get rid of your electronics and there's no eating on the floor. So you're going to eat at least an hour or two before bed. Um, and, you know, I didn't have a vehicle, couldn't afford a vehicle. So I ended up walking to this, which took about an hour from where I worked. You know, you get a little bit of exercise before bed. And I was surprised at the regularity and stability provided by the shelter that really, in a situation where I was trying to get my life back on track, uh, did a really good job, at least in the Ogden shelter. Um, and then the last two weeks of it, I just kind of dropped myself in Salt Lake City with five bucks in my pocket and said, have fun, like, you know, figure out, figure out how to survive uh, without really much back research. And I ended up in, in that ecosystem, I ended up being more of a park dweller. I had one night in a, there's two shelters, two main shelters in Salt Lake and had a very, um, some interesting experiences that first night. Um, and really realized that, you know, were I homeless, uh, I would definitely be someone sleeping in a park relative to sleeping in, in our shelter system, which was eye-opening as well. Um, so, yeah, I would I slept in cemeteries and various parks and, you know, behind buildings and got my got my food through various nonprofit organizations that provide for the homeless and, you know, did it in October, which, you know, got down into the 20s. Um, and so even just having a really kind of crummy, you know, 40-year-old sleeping bag that you packed along on this, you know, rucksack that, you know, is somewhat ubiquitous in what we think of as a homeless person, like just understanding how insufficient that is, but also what you do to even in, you go to the bathroom legally in Salt Lake. There's no public restrooms in Salt Lake uh, after hours. And so it's just, it, it was definitely an experience that, changed what we were interested in attacking. And for me personally, it really changed the scale at which we thought to attack. Because if you're empathetic at all, you go into an environment where literally everyone around you, hundreds of people have a story that will absolutely break your heart. And you want to solve all of them. I mean, that's your, your instant gut reaction as a human being is, oh gosh, I've got, I've got to help. How can I help? Um, and you realize very quickly that you can't solve all of them. What you need to solve is the generalized macro condition that puts people in that, because that's something you could at least attack with some vigor, because there's no way one by one you could you could really get it done. So, yeah, that's actually a lot of the impetus for the open project we did uh, was that came directly on the heels of it. And we had a whole list of things on the, you know, the minimum wage kind of study and um, to a certain extent the homeless study. And then there was a month I lived in a van uh, in December that we were just like, all right, well, we can we can tweak this little thing or we can at least start taking really good data on the entirety of someone's life at these incomes instead of just, you know, building a box that keeps rain off people and calling it good. Wow, that's a very impactful story, and it was it was a um, a whole year between you know living in the affordable housing at minimum wage and being homeless. Yeah, uh, 2015. Um, it was minimum wage with uh, in then within that it was minimum wage in a vehicle, and then a month of that was uh, without a home. Wow, and this all came out of the development of affordable housing. And you just wanted to have a better understanding about who's going to live in this affordable housing and where they're coming from. And it might be this kind of condition. Yeah, that was our target population that we were trying to help. And it, 
you know, we were definitely well-meaning, but we weren't doing it as well as we could. There was a situation not within this year where we took a building that we'd recently completed um, called North 6. You know, we had 10 ADA units that we'd gone ahead and had our architect design, theoretically, and met all the codes and, you know, had roll-in showers, countertops that had been shrunk, you know, bars around the toilet. And we're like, all right, that's probably pretty good. It wasn't until we actually, our whole crew rented some wheelchairs and we tried to actually get around and live in one of these units. And we're just like, these are horrible. I, I mean, clearly these were not designed by the end user because we just had no idea what the end user was. So until you kind of put yourself in the situation, regardless of your intention, you're likely just not to fully grasp what would make a real difference in someone's life unless you've you know, tried on those shoes a little bit. And not that you ever can really know what it's like. I mean, but you can know better. I mean, if you want to learn French, the easiest place to do that is in France. Are you going to be a native speaker ever? No. But it's, you know, it, it'll give you a nice synopsis if you spend a year or two there. And that's kind of the thinking behind trying to do housing a little bit better than what we were doing. Chris, you alluded to some stories when you were talking about being homeless. You know, I mean, I think both the minimum wage and, and the homeless uh, experience, little things you don't think of. I had a situation uh, on the minimum wage side where I was being crafty with my budget. And so I was cooking up ramen, you know, stereotypical, and I was adding spaghetti noodles to my ramen. Um, and I had them over on a pot. And my intention is to eat directly out of this pot. So I go ahead and I, I take the handle and I put over and I have this kind of you know coaster thing set up on the table. And I went back up to get, I think, a glass of water or something. And sure enough, I bump the pot and instantly have scalding water all over my midsection from kind of low belly down to thigh. And it, very hot. I mean, boiling water. So I, I eject all of my clothing. And sure enough, I'm getting, you know, the blisters are already starting to come up. So I've got at least a second degree burn I've given myself that, you know, I, I'm going to have to take care of. But, you know, even though uh, this was right after Obamacare came out, uh, came out, even though I had insurance, which was lucky for me, you still have that kind of question. I mean, this was the first month in the study. And so, you know, the, the copay or the deductible, even if you only have a $500 deductible, $500, if you're making 11 or $1,200 a month, will absolutely break your budget if the, most of that's going to rent and other things already. So you have a decision to make. Am I going to go and, you know, hire some sort of ambulance? Of course not. I can't afford that. Am I going to go to Instacare, which is going to be at least several hundred dollars for me? Or am I going to try to, you know, get myself to a regular doctor somehow? This was kind of late hours, so I, I wasn't guaranteed that. So I'm mulling through these decisions, none of which are good. Um, and this would be where I kind of would have, had I gone anywhere, um, ended up in a check cashing place or something to try to pay these medical bills that I had instantly gotten, like my first month of the study. And then I realized I can't wear pants. Like I've this is not a situation where I can just throw on some drawers and go. I'm, I'm burned in the area that I would normally be closed, which, which is annoying if you own a car. But not wearing pants on public transit is a misdemeanor. So even just the accessibility of healthcare, I think in the beginning of the study, I was like, oh, you know, I'm so lucky I'm simulating what Obamacare would be on someone on my exact wage. 
And then you realize the whole ecosystem around the decision, it's not just enough to have insurance. You've got to have some condition where you have a couple hundred dollars to pay for your deductible. And even just getting to the hospital in a way that's not going to be a $500 ambulance call are things that at a middle income or even a low moderate income, you don't have to think about. But if you're at that level of income, every decision that we make a hundred of in a day is something that could critically affect your ability to survive. Those sorts of just experiences that make you appreciate. I think we do a a poor job, um, certainly in some segments of the country, assuming that people that don't have money are unintelligent. The reality is that to exist on that level of income, you have to be an actual genius. Because if we spend a minute more in the shower in the morning than we should, we bop in the car, nobody knows. If you've got an hour commute between different trains and buses and you're a minute late, you do that twice and you're fired. So what you have are people's heads completely filled with complete non-issues for kind of the majority of the population. And when you have to carry on space for all of those decisions and you have to execute with perfection or your budget will be destroyed, you don't really have time to think about anything else because there's 50 snakes ready to bite you on any given day. And I, I, I think that really was impressed upon me in a way that it hadn't been before. You're in survival mode. Yeah. And I, I think we talk about survival mode like it's a mental condition, right? I mean, it's, it's very much the cortisol is flowing and we think about it as something that you could actually fix someone with. Oh, well, you know, maybe some medication or maybe if we got them to calm down. But the reason you're in survival mode is you literally can get strung up on any given thing. If you get a parking ticket and you can't pay the parking ticket, the next time someone sees you, you might basically have someone take your car and your entire life will spiral out of condition. Whereas if you're at a moderate income and you get a parking ticket, it's not a big deal. So the, the amount of things you have to be a genius about is completely unrealistic when you're trying to take a math equation that starts with minimum wage and solve for why when there's probably 500 variables in your equation. That's a very intimidating algebraic problem that if you had to solve every single day, you would not have the energy to think about anything else. Did you make friends or acquaintances in the culture that you feel really contributed to your understanding? Absolutely. In the the homeless simulation, I don't think I appreciated prior why someone might choose to be in that situation. Um, there's this like undercurrent of sentiment that maybe homeless people are lazy. Let's say that you are a recovering addict and some decisions in your life have burnt most of your bridges. So you feel like you're the black sheep of the family. You might have people that you have wronged, that you feel deeply guilty about. Your self-image at that point is of very little worth. Being around other people that will not judge you for that is psychically healing in a way I wouldn't have appreciated otherwise. And that's the thing that is somewhat solved in a, in a kind of communal environment where you get to be around people who don't instantly think of you as trash. Some of the individuals that I met and became friends with really kind of opened my eyes to reasons for homelessness or reasons for deep poverty that I, didn't, I in no way understood. Still don't understand, but I've, I've got a little bit better of an understanding. You were in this environment for a temporary period of time. You were eventually going to go back to your old life. I can't imagine what it is for somebody that this is their life, and then all of a sudden 
they have, you know, what to them becomes tremendous abundance, that must really be a shock and maybe hard to deal with. And maybe that's why people stay in a state of homelessness, because they're so afraid that if they experience this abundance from their perspective, at some point, they will lose it again. And it's like a fear of success. One of the top reasons why someone who gets a home, as we have several buildings where we have units set aside for people exiting homelessness. And one of the top reasons why you you might get evicted from one of those isn't you. It's the people that you instantly want to. And it's very hard if you're the one who gets a home among a bunch of people who are going to be out in the cold tonight, not to say, hey, come sleep on my couch, you know, sleep on the floor, you know, whatever you've got to do. And so you end up, you know, from the landlord perspective, having to relegate who comes in because a lot of these people might be taking advantage of the person who got a home or they're just, they're not ready to be housed. There's uh, some behavioral thing that's really detrimental to the other neighbors. But there's a huge amount of guilt if you are the one who has that and nobody else does. And to a very light extent, I say light not because it wasn't, it didn't affect me, but because I'm sure it's much worse. I had this coat that I had gotten and a week later, you know, the decision was, yeah, I mean, someone had donated this, I'm going to give it back. So I'm just writing our transit system. And I, I wrote it for about 20 or 30 minutes waiting for someone that you could tell was homeless. You, you very quickly pick up on signals that people have that might indicate that they're not housed, that aren't necessarily your traditional homeless looking individual, for lack of a better term. So I, I see this person out of the corner of my eye and I'm, I'm like, you know, this person could use this coat. So I make a story about, hey, I, I was given this. It's the wrong size. Can you go ahead and take this? It will save me having to explain why I'm wearing it. Yeah, yeah. I contrived some story where it wasn't just a gift, but it was helping me that they were going to receive this coat. And I got off the train and I just started weeping. Full on, large scale waterworks inconsolably on my way home. Because the, the survivor's guilt for lack of a better term. I mean, that's a very big term for something that I, I can't imagine on the level it's commonly used for, but that is kind of the, the, what it felt like on a smaller degree that I get to go back to my life. Like, I mean, it's, it's done now. And yet, you know what everybody else is going to be doing on November 5th in Salt Lake city, you know, who's got a good sleeping bag and who doesn't have a good sleeping bag and how people are going to, ride transit the second it opens up to get warm, not because they're going anywhere, but just because that's the only place they're allowed to be that is not freezing. It just broke me for about a week. I mean, I was just in this daze where I, I didn't kind of understand my own moral systems anymore. Why you could have someone, you know, buying an 80 inch TV at Costco for their basement that they never go to. And yet you had, a mom and a kid that were just trying to make it work. And the only reality this kid's ever known is that food is really, really hard to get. It's very, very difficult to make that transition back into even a minimum wage scenario because I still wasn't done with the study. But I had a place, I had a shower that I didn't have to protect my stuff in whilst I was showering. And it just, all of it seemed very wrong. Not that I had it, but that not everybody did. So I, I think those sort of situations where if you are the one who gets a home 
and you got 10 friends that don't have it, uh, there's a massive amount of guilt. I don't think that people appreciate that they just assume that it's all kind of flowers and roses. Congratulations, you got a house. There's a whole social construct when you really know how bad it is for other people that even that seems, you know, you have deep senses of unworthiness or of just kind of the inequity of you having a, a quote unquote easy life now. Well, that, uh, that was quite a story, and I'm glad the little birdie that told me about it before we started today was the impetus for me to ask you to share it, and thank you so much for sharing it, Chris. And, and while that was an amazing story, we are here today to talk about net zero building. Uh, you know, we're going we're, we're gonna to get into that, but thank you so much. I, I'm sure our listeners have been in, impacted by that, and maybe they might have to pause for a minute and go get a glass of water and come back and... Uh, and you know, hear about really, I guess, I guess what it is that you're doing, your mission, uh, you know, really revolves around this, uh, sense of perspective that you have. And that's why you build what you build. That's why you're doing what you're doing. And I'm really excited about hearing all about it. You know, and, and that really, that experience, um, again, just shifted our wants to necessarily build buildings to instead try to build buildings in a way that could uh, maybe affect the overall market and the overall kind of macro scale of both our region, where we live specifically, and then even maybe nationally. And that really is the impetus, I think, for us trying to go about the, the net zero path that we took, which was a little different. I mean, the question wasn't, can we build a building? in a way that doesn't uh, pollute its environment and add to our, our problematic airshed in the winter. It was what building could be a way that all buildings could be built without requiring anyone to have a gun to their head, making it so someone with a big diesel truck and two exhaust pipes at the top of it still built a net zero structure or carbon neutral structure. If you can get that guy to go ahead and build a building that doesn't pollute, then you've won. But if you can't get that guy, then there's work still to be done. So, you know, that experience really just with that deep amount of need that specifically in the homeless setting you see every day and you realize you can't solve individually really led our company to start thinking about how we can move away from individual buildings and start having what we build uh, be basically a step somewhere to a larger problem rather than, you know, just our little thing. Let's talk a little bit about some of the technical aspects of this, moving through the process. What's the primary agency or agencies that a would-be developer of this type of project? And, you know, I think affordable is pretty self-explanatory because it's been, you know, done a lot before. Um, So we probably don't need to necessarily share which agencies. And, of course, it's going to be different in each state. But let's talk more about the net zero aspect of it. And integrating that, you know, with the affordable project. So I would imagine that the uh, state or municipal agencies where it is that you're building, you know, have to get involved from the affordable point of view. And then, of course, the utility has to get involved from the net zero point of view. Do those two agencies need to um, interact with each other and have an understanding in order to move forward, or do they operate independent of each other? And you know what else that I didn't mention would come into play here. Our goal really was to make it so nothing had to be different at all to build this. 
the idea was you should be able to go and get a regular loan from who you're used to getting a loan from. You should be able to get your financing stack in exactly the same manner as you usually did. The only change is what your furnace looks like was our goal because the ease of uptake is going to help dictate how many people do that. So there really wasn't anything different. The Rocky Mountain Power Partnership on the solar field is unique. It's something that I believe they are going to expand. They've, they've mentioned that they would like to expand it to the extent there's demand, which we're hoping is quite robust. But there's nothing really special about that relationship either. There isn't a utility that couldn't do what they did. You just have to kind of have a conversation or two with them. I think sometimes utilities get a bad rap and sometimes earned bad rap for being the snuffers out of clean energy. At the end of the day, they're interested in providing power in the manner that their customers want them to provide it. To the extent that people want to see us move into a post-fossil fuel economy, both with transportation, but especially with buildings, I think just having very clear conversations about what you want and then having a creative idea you know, like Subscriber Solar, which they were marinating on before us, and we just proved that there is, yes, there is a market for this, here's how it might work, uh, can be pretty fruitful. So when a building is less expensive to build by being net zero, all of the complexity around how do you finance it that typically accompanies a carbon neutral building goes away. Now it's just getting a regular loan and it needs to be that easy if it's going to become the new normal. So in New York City, where I am, a developer that builds affordable housing gets a big real estate tax break for the period of time that they're going to hold the units affordable. How does it work in Utah? Do you get some kind of a real estate tax break or a tax credit or a combination of both or some kind of upfront rebate? And then go over the fence to the utility and tell me if there is any give back from them. In both cases, Utah has an interesting way of handling affordable rebates. You are an affordable housing project. You basically submit to them your end of year financials. And you say, look, this is what the project makes. They pick a cap rate and they evaluate you based on what your net income was and then charge you taxes proportionate to what the value of your building is as an affordable housing building instead of what it costs you to build in the beginning or what it would be worth as a market building. So they don't give a direct subsidy that says, look, if you give me this amount of units, you're going to get a check for this amount, but they make it so that the reduced rent and therefore the reduced profit on the building is taken into account by the lower tax bill that they then charge you. Utilities give a lot of rebates for very efficient systems in the hundreds of thousands of dollars on our project or projects that are you know, in that kind of 10 to $15 million range. In addition to the $250,000 you saved in construction costs, you would also get these rebates. Correct. Yeah, that's irrespective. And I should note too, that 250 is kind of V2 of Project Open. We're actually helping the Housing Authority of Salt Lake with a permanent supportive housing building. So that's housing for people exiting homelessness primarily. It begins construction this month. We'll save $400,000 before rebates relative to had they done a relatively inexpensive natural gas install. So it's great that you're getting the savings now, but the trajectory of those savings, I think, is only going to go up as this equipment type becomes more normalized. In a project like this, what's the capital stack? We received federal uh, low-income housing tax credit on the uh, project. Uh, Had a partner actually from New York, uh, Goldman Sachs, has been a great partner for us over the years. They went ahead and bought the rights to those credits. Phase one also had some state subsidy in the form of a low-interest loan. 
that's the basic capital stack of phase one. Phase two didn't use the state subsidy. It used a city low interest loan as well as the tax credits. And then phase three is likely to do the same thing. What are the terms, if you can share that, what are the terms of that low interest loan for phase two? Typically, the city and or state in this market will give between a zero and 2% loan, which could be amortized over between 30 and 40 years, depending on the depth of affordability that you're providing. Uh, permit supportive housing building, like uh, the one I mentioned with the housing authority, has 0% debt on a 40-year AM. So you're amortizing it at 0% over 40 years. The loan never has to be restructured over that period of 40 years. Correct. Utah is actually very, very flexible. So you'll see you'll see different projects that might even have deeper need than, say, an open project. Open's AMI is between 25 at the low. We have five units that are basically a reserve for people coming out of homelessness. So that's very low rent in the 300-some-odd range. And it goes up to people making 55% AMI at a 50% AMI rent level. So, you know, you'd be in the seven to $800 a month range for those people and everywhere in between. So definitely an affordable project, deeply needed, isn't a permanent supportive housing project. So I think we paid something around the one and a half percent range on that. But the Utah ecosystem between the state and the city and some of the philanthropic organizations, really any sort of amortization, soft debt, hard debt, forgivable debt. I mean, you'll see a a wide variety of solutions in this market. The equity portion of the project, are you attracting investors? We work with an investment group for kind of the short term to to buy the land, to do the pre-development expense. But the amount of equity brought in by the credits removes any long-term equity in the projects. So there isn't actually any dollars in on the developer side once you break ground. So as the developer, do you wholly own it at some point? For a low-income housing tax credit building, there's kind of this contrived partnership where part of what the person buying your tax credits get is your depreciation. So technically, uh, these buildings are owned 99.99% by whomever bought your tax credits for 15 years. And then generally speaking, at year 16 or 17, that partner exits and the the ownership goes to the ownership or development entity. During the course of that 15 years, the profit splits are primarily going toward the the developer. So usually a 90-10 split is what you'll see in that scenario, but the technical ownership of the project is almost always virtually 100% to the person who bought the credits. Oh, all right. But as the developer, you're receiving 90% of the the, uh, operating profit. Correct. And then you said the ownership automatically in the 16th year transfers over to you, the developer. So Goldman, uh, in our case, uh, but really any any tax credit syndicator, usually by year 15 or 16 would like to remove themselves from the deal. So they'll either sell or donate or otherwise give you the their share of, of the project at that point. And at that point, you don't really have to make an investment to receive that. It just kind of comes to you automatically as part of the way the thing was structured to begin with. It's kind of a deal by deal thing, but generally speaking, yeah, you're not paying because you're you're already entitled to 90% of all the proceeds if that's your deal. And again, that can move up and down too. But you know, that 10% ownership of future profits is really all you're buying out, which is typically a small number. 
So this sounds great because you're providing housing to people who need it. You're able to create more density. You're eliminating the carbon footprint of that particular project. And it's profitable too. You know, prospective developers can make more money doing market rate housing if that's what they'd like to do. I I don't want to represent that, you know, you're going to get rich doing affordable housing. But there are definitely ways of providing affordable housing that will put food on your table. That market has become one of the lead players in building ingenuity, too. It's a very stable resource. Low-income housing tax credits have been around since 1986. It's one of the few tax programs that both Democrats and Republicans in the House and Senate are very much behind. The government gets very high efficiency for their money. And Utah actually has one of, if not the highest price for tax credits in the nation. And you'll actually see people paying more than a dollar in upfront equity for the right to a tax credit for $1 of tax credit that might be paid in years one through 10. So the government ends up not having to do nearly the compliance that they would have had to do were it a fully government-owned building because you've got a bank that bought those credits. It's going to make dang sure that you're doing what you say you do. Otherwise, they're not entitled to their credits. So the kind of the checking entity is far more efficient in a LIHTC model than what it replaced in the 80s. It's a very efficient vehicle for providing affordable housing with kind of federal subsidies. So it's, it's a very kind of popular method that I don't see going anywhere anytime soon. Let's talk about the project that you're doing. You're doing a, it's a three-phase project, correct? At least three phases. There, there's probably another five behind it. Oh, okay. But right now, phase one is done. You're almost done with phase two, or you just get ready to start phase two? You just broke ground, so it'll complete in about 11 months. And you had told me that you uh, had a little bit of a delay when we spoke a few weeks ago uh, in preparation for doing the episode because of the government shutdown. <laughs> That's true. And, and and then I guess when the government opened up again, they were ready to let you go forward? Or Yeah. I mean, some of the things when, when you're tearing down an existing um, structure, even if it's a very nondescript existing structure, some of the funding sources we use require a letter from an agency that was more or less closed for business. So uh, <laughs> that, that wouldn't have uh, three we, initials starting with an H and ending with a D, would it? It would. Maybe we don't have to say that. <laughs> All right. But anyway, all kidding aside, what's the exit strategy for a project like this? The 15 or 16 years have gone by. Now you retain ownership of 100% of the property from the entity that bought the tax credits. You have operating income. Obviously, you're making a profit. Maybe it's not the same as it would be if, if it was a market rate rental property. Do you hold on to this forever? I mean, are the affordable units affordable forever? What's the exit strategy down the road? So the federal government that provides these tax credits requires you to be affordable for 15 years. It delegates to the state, often it's the states, in large municipalities. Sometimes you'll have a city directly receive tax credits as well. But it delegates to them what their parameters will be. 9% credits, uh, which is basically the most subsidy solution of the tax credit world. There's also 4% credits, which are a little lighter subsidy. But 9% credits are competitive. And so your state agency generally uh, will go ahead and make the rules for that competition. And then, you know, best score wins is how most of them do it. In Utah, 
what that means is that in order to win, you're going to have to do the 15 years of compliance for the federal low-income housing period, and then you'll have to do an additional 35 units uh, in order for to satisfy the state's kind of tack-on. So in Utah, if you use tax credits, you're going to be affordable for at least 50 years. Other states' mileage can vary. How many years? Say that again. Uh, in Utah, it's basically 50 is what you're signing up for. Five zero. Five zero. Uh, the federal requirement is 15. And then Utah, just because of the way it distributes them, requires an additional 35 on top of that. So five zero is what you end up with in this state. It can be as low as 15. Utah, actually, five years ago, it used to be 99. So states vary anywhere from 15 to more or less perpetuity on how long these things will be um, rented at an affordable rate. You've decided this is what your vocational work is going to be. You're going to be a developer in affordable housing. You're going to do this over a period of time. At the end of the day, after 20 years, maybe you have 20 projects that are completed. Maybe you have 30 projects that are completed. At some point, you don't want to be in the real estate business anymore. Maybe you want to sell this entire portfolio to a large owner-operator or institutional investor. What is there an increase in value that is going to happen organically just because of time going by? Or is it going to be difficult to sell this portfolio? Our particular portfolio would not have a hard time selling. You are, of course, over that, say, 30-year period before our group would be thinking about retiring. Uh, you more or less paid off your mortgage. Um, these these projects don't have nearly the debt market rate do, but they often do have some debt. You would have equity at that point that you'd paid down. The affordable housing component isn't a fixed number. It's typically a percentage of the area median income. So as your area median income increased over time, so too would your rents. Uh, so there's likely to be appreciation there as well. For us specifically, where our principal goal is kind of adding and then maintaining vitality to different neighborhoods, we don't intend to sell uh, at the end of 15. I think we would probably near retirement before we would liquidate any of them, which is helpful to us. You build a project differently if you think you're going to own it for 30 or 40 years before you go over. And we feel like that's kind of missing. If you look at how projects across the nation used to be built, you would have someone you know, with his own two hands building his home, or you'd have someone saying, hey, will you build me this house? And they were very directly connected. The, the end user was the principal instigator of development. And you can see these beautiful old buildings as a direct result. The craftsmanship you get in old homes is directly related to the intimacy between the person building the, the bricks one by one and the person who's sitting there excited to see this thing get built for them. We don't have nearly that anymore. Now it's someone who basically has to sell many, many, many units because they're you know, a large corporation with staff and a payroll. And what you get is this kind of generic construction, because if you're trying to build something so that the most potential people would buy it, you end up building it very generically. So it doesn't have anything in it that would turn off anybody. So with our projects, knowing that like, I'm going to be the guy getting the call if the plumbing goes down uh, systemically in the project, not, not you know, toilet by toilet, but the problem is going to be borne by me. I really try to make sure every piece of that building is thoughtful. A couple of our staff, myself included, live in our buildings. Those past five projects, 
with the exception of one I've personally lived in for at least a year, seeing how they are, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't work, seeing what we can get better next time the next time. Whereas if we were kind of, you know, just planning on liquidating these very quickly, I don't think we would have that real care to go ahead and build them as well as we could do them. So it sounds to me like you really put your money where your house is. (laughs) (laughs) So we are approaching that time of our talk where it will soon come to an end, but there's still a couple of questions I want to ask. The first one is, do you want to identify any risks of net zero building? And, And you can do net zero with market rate as well, right? It's a lot easier to do with market rate. We were interested in air quality really as we kind of dove into this overall study on on affordable housing and what it's like to live, you know, a lifestyle without many means. You know, apart from just being human, we wanted to to make a pitch that centered around air quality rather than global warming because we we do live in a country where people have differing views on that. But air quality in Utah is as much a social issue as it is, you know, a theoretical issue. Because if you have a red air day here and you're making $10 an hour and can't afford a car, that just means you're going to have a sore throat that day. If you're walking your kid to school because you can't drive your kid to school and it's a really bad air quality day, that kid's just going to cough that day. I mean, that's, that's the basic reality of it. Whereas middle income or upper income families you have a filter in the front of your car to protect you from what's coming out the back of it. There's only so many times if you walk to work and your throat hurts that you don't start thinking about some systemic way of fixing that. So that's the reason we went with the affordable housing uh, component. It wasn't because it's any easier to do. If anything, it's the opposite. It's really what we were interested in. But no, a market rate developer could tomorrow, and this is a fun sentence to say because we weren't sure it was going to be true either, but at least in, in our market, in the Rocky Mountain market, really anywhere, with the exception of really, really, really cold places, and I'm talking like top of Canada places, these heat pumps are 100% efficient down to negative 20. The thought of a heat pump being something that takes heat out of the air, to me, meant, well, if it's warm outside, it'll make it a little warmer inside. No, as long as you're above absolute zero, not zero degrees, absolute zero, some of this equipment can go ahead and still suck heat out of the air. So we're currently at a place where the technology has finally become affordable enough where your next project, I almost don't care where you live, could spend less money to build it and have a better performing building if you went net zero. The the question really is, would you like to save money tomorrow on your next building? And if the answer is yes, you can now build a net zero building that'll solve that problem for you. I guess in answer to my question, are there any risks of net zero building? The answer is no. Heat pump technology has been in Europe for 40, 50, 60 years. It's not rocket science. It's been in the U.S. for a couple decades. But these smaller systems, like they're they're not as normal. They haven't been done as much. So trying to find something that you shouldn't do. I mean, if you want to give it a year or two and just, you know, make sure buildings like mine don't stop working randomly, then okay. That would really be the only super conservative thing that you might do. But I really don't think that's needed. I mean, the basic technology between an all-electric heat pump has been around a very long time, and it's not very complex mechanically. So I I don't think there's a reason you shouldn't do this right now. Chris, when you and I were originally preparing for this, 
you had mentioned some other statistics. And I think it was around electrified cars and transportation. It had a lot to do with transportation. And you talked about that between net zero building, and this is specific to Utah and the Valley where they get those red air days. And by the way, I'm familiar with those days because I lived in Utah for five years. And I remember saying, this is such an amazing place to live. But this intermittent poor air quality is really, really difficult to deal with. And what you have said to me that, you know, a decade, two decades, three decades down the road, based on certain things, and please share that with our listeners, they could actually have better air quality in the same area of Utah than they do today. You know, I think that's absolutely doable. In Utah, and I I don't suspect that the ratio is much different in a place like LA or, you know, name your city with bad air quality. It's almost all of them these days. We're about 40% vehicle load. For our air quality, tailpipe emissions basically contribute to about 40% of our problematic air. 40%-ish is buildings, and then the others, you know, there's a little bit of industry in there, and then there's some ancillary, you know, one and two percenters. But we're coming up on a time where I think just even this week, the news of GM and Amazon investing in an electric truck company called Rivian that no one had heard about three months ago kind of coming at the same time as almost every major car manufacturer releasing over the next two years a new electric vehicle, coupled again with driverless technology that will likely make vehicle ownership, at least for that second car, or if you're in a city or of a lower income, kind of go away, really gives the possibility of a future where vehicle electrification is just normal. It's accepted. We don't know why you would ever go and roll down the street on wheels that are powered by some sort of internal literal explosion factory uh, that you have in the front of your car. So in that world, in the world where I click on my phone for an Uber that doesn't have a driver that comes to an electric car, picks me up, it takes me where I want to go for three bucks because now the driver isn't part of that equation. Right now it's about 75% of their cost, I think. You could see that 40% transportation load in our air quality go down. You might even see it over the next 50 years go down to zero. If that's the case, then the only thing you've got to solve for in order to have better air quality in a place like Utah, whose population is supposed to double, is to make sure that your buildings, when that population does double, don't make up the difference on you. And if they don't, then you've you've got a good shot of taking really the only reason you wouldn't live in Salt Lake, because the the lifestyle here is, is amazing or Ogden or Provo or really anywhere on the Wasatch Front, uh, you've got a good shot of that main turret to go down. The alternative to that is that, you know, if you keep your transportation systems as they are now and you keep your building systems as they are now, then in, you know, 30 years when the Wasatch Front's population doubles, you're going to have double the pollution. And you already are at a critical factor during some weeks of the winter here where this surreal environment that we went from 60 years ago, where someone said, oh, go, go out and play, Johnny and, and Jill, get the fresh air outside. It's quite the opposite here. There's already a few weeks of the year where you'll have warnings over the radio not to exit your home. If that level of pollution doubles, this isn't going to be a place you can live, let alone want to live. So it really is kind of a two-reality system. You, you can, you've got a real shot at having substantially better air quality in 20 years. 
And with all of the studies coming out relating air quality to early onset Alzheimer's, to child asthma, to longevity, generally speaking, there's an incentive that's there irrespective of whether you think we're warming the earth that says you should probably do this. You've got that reality on one hand that says, look, you can walk out, see the mountains beautifully from any part in Salt Lake City, have a nice life even with double the population versus a, a very much dystopian future if we don't solve this pretty quickly. As long as we make the changes to our buildings in time where the changes to our cars that can be made up for, so to speak. We've got a real chance of this being, you know, a place that doesn't have any downsides, or at least, in my opinion, doesn't have many downsides of living. The alternative is just not a very pretty future. And it's interesting because I think Utah is a really great place to do this right now because the, I guess the population is about 3 million. Is that correct? Correct. And most of those 3 million people live along the Wasatch Front. And the Wasatch Front pretty much goes from Provo to Brigham City? More or less. About 80% of our population lives along this mountain range. And that's about 120 miles, would you say? Give or take. So when the population doubles, you're going to have 6 million people living in that space of time. And when you think about it, Long Island, which is made up of the counties of Nassau and Suffolk and the New York City boroughs, two of them, Queens and Brooklyn is 120 miles long, and it's probably about as wide or maybe a little less wide than the Wasatch Front from the mountains to the Great Salt Lake, and there's 11 million people already living there, but they don't have any mountains. They have water on both sides, actually on all three sides, actually on all four sides. They're, a, they're an island. Yes, Bill, they're an island. They have water on all four sides. <laughs> and in New York, we like to call it Long Island but it's really Long Island. And, <laughs> and when you think about it, I think it puts it in perspective for people. We have bad air days in New York City, no doubt. But I got to tell you, when I was out in Utah, it was like there was this thick gray smoke that you would walk out into. And, and I remember once I was actually going away. I was going to be driving to Colorado. And I drove through Provo Canyon and as soon as I got to the other side of the mountains through the canyon, I actually pulled my car over because we had had a thermal inversion, which is really what causes the uh, buildup in the air. And I got out of my car and I took a deep breath because it was the first time that I had breathed fresh air in several weeks. So there really is a problem there. And I think what you're doing to mitigate that problem by taking action and doing this type of development is fantastic. And thank you very much for your partner. I hope a lot of people follow that. The last thing I wanted to mention is that you have Give Development. You also have Give Communities. Could you just give our listeners like two minutes on what Give Communities is and how it plays into Give Development? Give started wanting to be a nonprofit, and it got formed right after the recession and saw a lot of really good nonprofits die out. People weren't feeling generous. The nonprofit's revenue model was completely based on grants uh, you know, from foundations or individuals. And so their work, regardless of how needed or important it was, stopped. And so we came to the conclusion that we wanted to have some sort of economic engine in addition to the nonprofit work that we were going to do that would basically make it so in 30 years we knew we'd be around because we cared about the things that we wanted to work on. 
So GiveD, Give Development, uh, really started as a funding vehicle for Give Communities, which it basically does guerrilla planning, small level guerrilla planning. So it'll go into a neighborhood that's you know either on the literal front lines of gentrification or you know a depressed neighborhood that hasn't been able to remember its most interesting years back in the day and figure out how to bring balance in one way or the other, either by bulwarking an area that's about to be overrun with some affordable housing, some affordable artistic resources, some communal resources, the sorts of things that get bulldozed over when the high-end condos come in, or going into an area that just needs a bit of a spark and figuring out what is that first thing, and then how can you actually do that first thing. So it's connective tissue, if you will, between city-level planning and then a development community. It operates in three basic locations in Utah and makes makes a game plan, and then really puts a how-to step to that game plan. So rather than painting a zoning map and saying this is a general thing we'd like here, it's okay. Well, first thing we need is a grocery store. All right, back up. How how do we build a grocery store? Let's go ahead and get that built. It also provides consulting for other nonprofits or community organizations to build facilities that will help them in their missions. Right now, it's working with our local chapter, the VOA, building some housing for people with severe and persistent mental illness, as well as that aforementioned project for people exiting the shelter, 100 units of permanent supportive housing. If communities more or less you know, donates their time helping these great organizations build what they need to do their mission. Give Development, the for-profit, sees itself as a trier of new things. And then Give Communities sees itself as a, a filler in of gaps for communities and, and basically a resource to help them build what it is they'd like in their community. When our listeners want to reach out to you to talk to you about Give Development and or Give Communities, what is the best way to reach you? Info at givgroup.org is our uh, email. Feel free to reach out to us. We have an entire arm of the nonprofit that we will be developing whose pretty much sole goal is going to try to help us as a community, as a state, as a nation, move past our fossil fuel days. So if you have specific questions about that, shoot us an email. We'll, we'll shoot you back everything that we know. If you happen to want to just have an idea what the powder looks like today up on the slopes, then same email probably works. They're, all, they're also welcome to email me directly at chris at givgroup.org. And that's uh, give uh, without the E, just givgroup.org. That's it. Yeah. And I'll put that in the show notes. Well, Realty Speak listeners, that's all we have time for today. And I, I just want to say, Chris, that was marvelous. Thank you so much. I, I thought we were going to be talking about heat pumps and solar panels and definitely touched on that enough for people to understand how it works and what to do if they want to do this. But I really enjoyed the rest of the conversation. And thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and speak. Really like the work that you do. Hope you keep it up. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate that, Chris. Well, there you have it. Hey there, everyone. Thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining in for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast, as we begin year number two. Yay! Subscribe and don't miss another episode. Just search for us on your favorite podcast app like Podcast Republic or Google Podcasts on Android devices or Apple Podcasts for iPhone. 
You can also access Realty Speak right on my website podcast page at billwidener.com. Just click on the podcast link on the menu. And please share our show with others. Just choose share on the player and choose your preferred social media platform. And don't be afraid to make a comment on the episode page on my website. We love hearing from our listeners. And of course, you can always get directly to me via the website at BillWidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but about how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.